0: Hello and welcome to the political party. This is an election results special because, I was going to say because it takes so long to count the votes. I don't think it necessarily takes any longer to count them. It's just that the counts start later these days. I really wish counts started like they used to the moment the votes start, the moment the polls close at 10pm on a on a Thursday night. but. These things stretch out over the weekends, So I wanted to get all the results in before I talk to uh, Greg Cook, who's one of the best sophologists in the country, worked for the Labour Party, used to advise Blair and Brown. And he has an amazing knowledge, a detailed knowledge of every constituency in the country and a sharp political antenna. And uh, just a quick health warning on this. It was recorded before the Adrian shots by election. So that result is not known at this point and we will discuss that in a future podcast. But this is about the 6th of May, what those results mean and of course, particularly for the Labour Party really, although of course it's all relative therefore what it means for the Labour Party can be inferred what it means for the Conservatives, but we do go through that in detail. Before we come on to Greg and it's a fantastic rundown by the way with perhaps some surprising takes. Um before we come on to that, um, I love these emails. And uh, please email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Embarrassing, awkward or surprising encounters with politicians. This one is incredible. This is from Chris. I won't give his surname just in case. But he says, I thought I'd write in as I have a fairly awkward story about when I met Theresa May back when she was Home Secretary. I was at uni in Derby and I joined the Tories. He says in brackets, the folly of youth. So perhaps we can see where this story is going to go. He says, I was able to rise a little in the local party to become the elected head of what was then Conservative Future. That's what the young Conservatives had been rebranded as, I think, in the Corbyn era. And he'd been, uh, rose to the Heady Heights, being Deputy Head for Membership on the Executive Team. As a result, he says, I was invited to the chairman's dinner every year it was 2014 or 2015 and Theresa May was the guest of honor the day of the dinner we'd all been out canvassing since the early morning I think we'd even been up to Newark to join the by-election and I was dead on my feet with some coffee I'd managed to get through the day and the meet and greet section of the evening but as soon as Theresa May stood up to give her address, I felt myself falling asleep with my head resting on the table Not necessarily a reflection of the quality of the speech, but because, to be honest, I can't now and couldn't then remember a word of it. What I thought was a short and subtle power nap, as I do remember hearing the clapping at the end of the speech turned out to be quite an obvious sleep in which I was told after I began to snore I was quite obviously positioned in a way where I was sleeping. It's also worth pointing out that although I was not at the head table, I was at table number two, which put me squarely in her eye line for the entire thing. I was roundly chastised after the thing had finished by a higher up, and although Theresa May was lovely to me in the meet and greet at the start of the evening, as far as I can remember, I wasn't given a farewell. Oh, great we've not all necessarily been there specifically in a room with the Home Secretary and future Prime Minister. But when you've got to sleep, I mean, you cannot, you can't keep yourself awake in the end, can you? you this is your, your body is out of your control, basically. He says, I'm now no longer a Tory, having dropped out of the party after finishing a degree module on modern British history and researching the actual record of the Tories in government. Wow, I would now consider myself to be much more on the centre-left. I've certainly become a retrospective fan of new Labour. Wow, I now feel politically homeless and have done for years. I do feel, though, as though I should re-enter the freight and perhaps join Labour. Well, Keir Starmer, if you're listening, there you go, or indeed any Labour person. Uh, Chris, a former Tory is being won over to the Labour cause, so there you go. Chris, that is a fantastic story, so... This started out as a thread about seeing politicians on holiday, but if you've ever fallen asleep in front of a politician or said something stupid in the heat of the moment or just out of sheer panic, or if you have any other embarrassing tale to tell, get in touch, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Now, as I said on the last episode the political party is returning to the stage and the timing of these shows and the guests I've picked make it look as if though I had some idea about what was going to happen. On the 24th of May, at the Garrick Theatre, I'm joined by Peter Mandelson, former MP for Hartlepool, and Saeed Avasi. On the 25th of May, Keir Starmer and Andrea Leadsom. That show was sold out. And on the 2nd of June... Uh, jess phillips and esther mcvay you can get tickets for all those shows apart from the 25th and there aren't many tickets left for the others uh, by clicking on the link in the blurb in the show notes or just by going to mattford.com slash live thank you as well a lot of you've been getting in touch about my new podcast british scandal which um <laughs> i feel bad for saying this but it's it, it's obviously really cool it's number one in the podcast charts and, and has been a week which is really cool and um if you like this show you'll probably like that uh, it's myself and alice levine and we go through um particular scandals in british history so uh, there are political elements to that so if you like this you may well like that so i've, I've put a link to that to the apple link um, but you can get that wherever you get your podcasts so on to this fantastic briefing with greg cook and what i love about episodes like this is greg used to brief prime ministers so this is exactly the sort of detail Put in exactly the same words as Tony Blair and Gordon Brown used to get by the guy that used to give it. And I think that's one of the great thrills of this show is being able to sit there and go, This is what he would have told the Prime Minister. And this is what people will be telling Keir Starmer, this is what people will be telling Boris Johnson, Nicola Sturgeon, Anas Sawa, and the other leaders of those parties. It is this sort of stuff that they get told. And I think that's one of the great things about this show is not only do we get reflections from people who've been there and done it, when you're getting the Benefit of someone like Greg Cook's expertise and insight in a way that leaders would have done and still do. I just think that's a great thrill. In a way, it's um it's almost like role play. You're like, oh, I feel like I'm the prime minister being told this. Now, maybe you don't consume the podcast in that way, but if you have a high-backed green leather chair, then sit in it for this, dim the lights. I was gonna say get a whiskey and a cigar. I'm not sure that's what prime ministers have done really since Churchill. Um but make yourself feel prime ministerial uh, because this is great. We go through every aspect that you'd want. Um, So we go through a a nation level, a party level and anything else perhaps that we might have missed. So the implications for every party, for Scottish independence, what Hartlepool means, basically everything. And uh, you won't get a better guest than Greg Cook to take you through all this stuff. I began by asking Greg um, about the results being framed as basically a disaster for Labour and whether that was correct.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, I've, you know, I'm familiar with the results overall, but I haven't looked at every kind of entrail trail uh, and every detail as I, you know, in the past might have done by this stage. But I think, uh, you know, I think that is probably a fair assessment. I mean, I think if you look at the benchmarks which people set for the parties before the election, what would be a good and bad result uh, for them? The, the, where the Tories came out was on the whole at the very good end, if not beyond it, in one, two places. Um, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, there were setbacks for them as well with a couple of the this where they lost, but overall it, you know, shows them as sort of bestriding the scene really uh, at the moment. Um, for Labour, I mean, there were some mitigations. I think the result in Scotland was better than uh, anyone you would have anticipated six months ago. Uh, even though they lost a couple of seats I think they've uh, you know held their own there. The result in Wales was probably much better than most people would have expected you know they came within an ace of getting an overall majority for the first time there. Uh, so those were both very important uh, pieces of you know progress. There were the two mayoral gains, uh, one of which was inspected, the other one which was uh, uh, not entirely expected although uh, you know it was a slight freak of the electoral system but nevertheless quite, Uh, impressive to have a Labour mayor in Cambridge and Peterborough. Um, But uh, overall, if you then, you know, if you look beyond that, uh, it's uh, pretty much a disaster, to be honest. I mean, I think personally, looking at these elections uh, over the last year or so, when we knew it was going to be the two years worth of local elections combined, I think a lot of us had the lazy assumption that it wasn't going to be that dramatic. You know, we've seen Followed in detail these local elections, and most of these councils are left um, in three years out of four. And on the whole, it's the same wards electing the same parties, uh, you know, again and again. We thought, well, two thousand nineteen is an aberration; it's out of the way. We're going to get back to normal now. Labour was in the lead in the polls briefly last year. We're going to see, you know, the normal kind of midterm trough. Opposition parties doing a bit better. That. We became used to, and probably nothing hugely dramatic is going to happen. Even when the Tories went a bit further ahead in the polls earlier in the year, I think that was the assumption. That was partly because the the the, the set of elections which was due to be up this year, twenty seventeen, which was mainly the county councils. Last time they were elected was in the twenty twenty seventeen, um, which uh, the early part of the general election, which uh, people may remember they were an absolute disaster. I think arguably Labour's worst local elections ever, the Tories were 11 points ahead. Um, and so it was could almost not fail to do better than that, uh, at least in those elections. So we thought it would be, you know, fairly even, the two big mayoral contests in West Midlands and the Tees Valley would be tough, but Labour wasn't completely out of contention. I think what kind of uh, made us think again, made me think again about that was when you got the hartley poll uh, and then when you've got some other polls showing these Tory mayors are going to win on a big scale. And it was a reminder that, you know, this is the first set of local elections which the Tories have fought under Johnson. So if there's going to be any um, you know, Johnson halo uh, effect, it was going to make itself felt. And um, also, you know, why should people actually, why should the big picture be any different than what it was in 2019? And that's what transpired. So basically, you know, the local elections broadly played out, um, you know, along along the lines of the patterns of 2019. But, uh, you know, for Labour, the problem was that they weren't just doing incredibly badly in a few places, you know, the the so-called red wall places. But, you know, across the board, uh, they did worse than expected, lost seats in most councils. Uh, And even in London, which, you know, there was sort of airy talk about Sadiq Khan winning on the first ballot when actually vote share went down quite significantly and uh, you know there were parts of London where there was a quite significant swing to the Tories so I think overall it's a real kind of um, you know wake up call it's a a reminder for Labour in particular uh, of the uh, very abnormal um, circumstances of the 2019 election and actually fundamentally Labour's obviously changed its leader but with the pandemic there's not been a chance for any kind of change in the electoral cycle to have played itself out.
0: I mean, that's right. It's, 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 we're basically where we were in 2019. But as you say, the one big thing that has changed is that Labour has a different leader and a leader very who is very different to his predecessor. It's not as if they chose another Corbynister who's on the hard left, who's kind of people might fear he's pro-Russian or pro-Iran or all this sort of thing. Kyrgyzstan was a very different prospect. Uh, And just in terms of ability, it is different. He is more professional. Um, It's not unreasonable to have presumed that that might have shifted the dial a bit. So why didn't it?
1: Um, Well, I mean, I'm I'm a believer that, uh, you know, leaders are, you know, the, the kind of defining factor in politics and electoral outcomes, um, and, you know, the evidence of the polls would suggest that, you know, is not tearing up any trees, but he's clearly kind of trusted as a leader much more than Jeremy. Um, on the whole, he's an asset. You know, the, what you get in focus groups is that, you know, people on the whole who switched away from Labour in 2019 feel that Keir's uh, a step back in the direction which uh, they they would want. Um, but clearly, the circumstances of the last year have been... Uh, you know, traumatic for everybody, and very difficult for Keir to, um, you know, establish a message, establish a personality, he's not somebody, you know, his his assets aren't naturally that he's kind of a great charismatic uh, performer, he's a a very intelligent, solid, decent guy, that's how he comes across, and that's the reality of it, I think, Um, uh, but he's up against a phenomenon, really, I think that's what we, you know, we can say, and I think Hartlepool is probably the evidence, Uh, of that, that there's never been uh, a politician that can be compared with Boris Johnson in his behaviour or in uh, the electoral reach which he had. And, you know, looking back now, we can see that, that, you know, for example, he managed to win uh, the mayoral election in London, Labour's greatest heartland now really, in 2012, uh, which was the year that, uh, that the Tories did worst in local elections against Labour. Of any year, since 1996, and he still managed to be re-elected in in London then. So he had that reach. He's got that great uh, asset that um, whether you agree or disagree with him, you listen to him. Uh, And I think what we've seen in these elections is that he cuts through uh, and to a certain sector of the electorate, they are, you know, very enthusiastic about him. But if you've got, you know, a fairly kind of balanced choice, got no particular strong reason to vote for one party or another, then he can be a decisive factor. Uh, And I think that's, you know, it's very difficult for any leader up against that. Um, But for Keir, you know, it's just too early for him to have made that much impression.
0: Particularly during a crisis like this, which is, you know, it's, it's locked down basically the whole planet. There's never been anything like this, really. So of course that has political implications. But what does your antenna tell you about what Labour needs to do? Is it just that they need to carry on doing what they're doing, but be louder about it and get on telly more and show Keir off a bit more. Or is there a problem with Labour's political positioning? Do they need to move further to the centre ground?
1: Well, I mean, it's, it's well known now that, uh, you know, we what the 2019 election exposed uh, more than any other one did previously is the new kind of pattern of Labour support. The Labour is a, a party which is... Its heartlands now are the big uh, cosmopolitan cities, and they're kind of diaspora, uh, professional people, uh, educational uh, people, and it's got it's got them lots of gains. The uh, you know university cities like Bristol, for example, where um, you know the heart of the West of England mayoralty, which Labour gained, uh, you know they you know they vote in big numbers now for progressive parties for Labour in general elections. Um, you know, the Cambridge, Shear and Peterborough result was largely off the back of the uh, kind of outpost of um, very pro-EU uh, liberal academia in the kind of greater Cambridge area. That's where the anti-Tory trends were uh, the strongest. So there's been big electoral uh, gains for Labour in, in London. It's its uh, profiles transformed over the last thirty years. Other big cities, um, but the generality outside of that is that Labour's drifted further and further away uh, from many of the people who used to be regarded as its core vote, and that's been and uh, that drift's been going on for a long time. The last couple of elections, it's focused into a shift to uh, the Tories. Now you can argue about whether it's to left to. Right, I suppose. I mean, my argument you know, There's clearly been big demographic change, which has underlined all of this. I, th- I think there are political choices which the Labour Party has made, which uh, have been the big staging posts along that route. Uh, you know, for example, the last four elections uh, it has gone into with leaders who uh, you were, know, you know, whatever their assets, Gordon, you know, outstanding Um Uh, statesman and politician but the fact was that he was less popular than David Cameron and Labour has chosen its leaders on the basis of what its activists feel most comfortable with although you know again let's acknowledge that uh, David Miliband rather than Ed won the members vote in 2010 Um, but you know on the whole leaders who are closer to the kind of pulse uh, of the party than maybe necessarily they are to the electorate, and there have been other staging posts along the way, the way Brexit was handled and so on, which are important. Um, but all of these, I think, are products of the type of party Labour is now. And, uh, you know, if there's one kind of characteristic that sums it all up, I would say that Labour has become uh, chiefly a party of the public sector. Its members are very disproportionately drawn from that. Um, and, you uh, that gives a particular mentality on uh, issues. You know, for example, it's one of the, uh, you know, the, the um, axioms of Labour now that the root of all evil is austerity, uh, brought in by David Cameron in 2010, uh, and all the cuts which have flowed from that. And clearly, those cuts have been devastating in many areas, particularly local government and so on. But I, you know, I can't remember the last time a Labour spokesperson did anything other than uh, you know, presented with a problem, suggests that the answer to it was spending more money. And on you know, the whole, people will, will support spending more money on services rather than less money. Um, but uh, what it's ignoring is the fact that the Tory austerity, as, as it's called, uh, was uh, you know, not popular with the public, but it was accepted as a necessary, um, and even now, you know, certainly at the time, every focus group I did between 2010 and 2015 for the party, um, in all different kinds of amongst all sorts of different kinds of social groups, people on the whole, you know, with a few exceptions, on the whole, people believed that it was necessary to rein in spending. Worse than that, from Labour, they had this uh, view that the the need for that was because of what Labour had done uh and the party which which they felt the nation had had uh, spending under labor and that is something which uh hangs around it and i think until labor gets a more nuanced view about um you know its attitude to what it calls austerity but you know is actually about kind of responsibility with public spending and clearly with covid that's going kind to of become an enormous issue over the next few years um then i think it's, it's out of tune with the instincts of many of these uh, former voters. The second area, I think, which flows from the public sector angle uh, is that Labour has given up completely on the idea of reform, modernisation of public services. And if there's one thing Labour should be, it should be about making public services the highest quality, the most customer responsive they could possibly be uh, for uh, you know all of us who pay for them and use them, um, but now, as I say, the solution is always about spending, and to the extent that there's, uh, you know, any discussion of reform, it's usually about uh, sort of ideologically excluding the private sector from any involvement in it, uh, you know, and that's not to say that there aren't, you know, many, there's valid arguments for many of these things, but uh, it's, again, it's not the instinct which uh, most people have about how things should be run. And the result is that you know many of these uh, red wall areas, where demographic change has been taking place, they've lost all the kind of um, roots which they were given through you know in the coal fields, you know the community uh, binding of the NUM and the fact that everybody worked in the same industry and so on. That's now ancient history. The, the you know Labour's been surviving for many years now on the kind of community tradition and loyalty. And what you find is that when that breaks down and when people find they've got an you know, an alternative, which is actually more attractive, you get the kind of extraordinary results which we've had in the last two elections. And the scariest thing from Labour's point of view, to my mind, is not you know, just what happened in 2019 with the losses then. It's what happened in the seats which Labour lost in 2017, which you know some of you will be familiar with, like Mansfield, northeast Derbyshire, where the dam broke on uh, the Labour tradition. And uh, the water flooded through in 2019, and these are now, you know, most people would objectively say numerically are safe seats. So it's a major, major problem which Labour has to address of how it actually, um, you know, communicates what its what its values are and, and the policies which it builds on that. I, I you know, my view would be that the, what they shouldn't do is to kind of have a red wall project and focus on on, uh, you know. Uh, retail uh, policy offers, uh, what they need to concentrate on is to present themselves as a credible, responsible government for the whole country, which will bring all those areas along with it. And, and, you know, while they can't win an election without those areas, they also can't win an election without places like Milton Keynes and Swindon and, uh, you know, the traditional kind of inverted commas, Middle England marginal battlegrounds. So, that's what they should be concentrating on. That's what Keir, I'm sure, uh, will be trying to present over the next few years.
0: I totally agree. And I think it's the same for the Tories when they talk about this union unit. We're going to appoint a guy that's going to keep Scotland in the UK. You think That's not how this works. And in doing that, you're kind of saying, there's a problem, you know? And, and by definition, you're saying, we need to talk to these people differently. I, I mean, I know it's hard to do, But I I totally agree that that the whole thing is talk to everyone. It's not a problem. Most people in Britain have something in common. There are huge things that we have. And that's not just about the Union and Scotland and England. I think you're not going to find two countries on Earth that have more in common than Scotland and England and, of course, Wales. So it, it shouldn't be that hard to say, I mean, particularly after a pandemic. That we've all been through together obviously there are differences in the way that people have experienced it in terms of uh you know demographics and age and income and all those things and race but still it has been a stressful time for all of us and if you can't bring everyone together on the back of that and see that in a you know it's been a very very difficult time but in that sense it's been very bonding i don't understand how people think about politics sometimes i think it's it's not it's really not that hard to say if you went to university and you're well off and you live in London. Actually, there are loads of things you have in common with a former coal miner in the northeast of England. There are loads of shared interests. Like <laughs> those things don't make you totally different people. And if you can't, I mean, any major party should be able to bridge that gap. For some reason, why do Labour find it so hard, or why is why is Labour since New Labour found it so hard?
1: Well, I mean, that's the point. I mean, uh, it has achieved this. I mean, I've. I've uh... This is a, a story which goes back decades, you know, really, Labour's relationship with, the, uh, with this working class support. Um, the, the one very interesting kind of example of that, um, you know, if, I think you could probably uh, make us quite a strong case that the high point of class voting was the 1964 election when Harold Wilson just sneaked ahead. And probably, the, if you know, if you were able to make these measurements, you'd find that you know, the constituencies you won all had a kind of manual working class majority. The ones that the Tories won had a white collar majority. That's the the point from which everything has changed. Now, the 1970 election, Labour uh, lost um, unexpectedly. Um, And the worst result in that election was in uh, Cannock Chase, which was uh, the seat of on Iron Bevan's uh, widow, Jenny Lee, which Labour lost on a swing of 10 percent or more, which almost unheard of at that time. Uh, Now, Cannock Chase is a mining area, still was a mining area at that time in Staffordshire. Um, And uh, right through the last 50 years, it's popped up again and again, uh, you know, as the sort of exemplar of this story. So Labour kind of narrowly regained it in 1974, lost it heavily in 83, narrowly regained it in 92, won it with ease through the new Labour years. And in 2010, the Tories won it from number 205 on their winnable target list. And in, I think, two out of the last three elections, it again has had the biggest, almost the biggest swing in the country. And last week, symbolically, uh, the Tories actually got a majority on the local council for the first time. Um, So, you know, the the story of Labour's travails in, uh, you know, industrial areas and mining areas is one which has gone on through the 70s and 80s, you know, your old region, the East Midlands, one was particularly, you know, concentrated numbers of these seats, which were affected over that period. And in the 70s and 80s, the big story was about um, uh, what, what was called aspiration, which was basically about how all these miners now had tellers and went to Mallorca on holiday. How could you ever expect them to uh, vote Labour uh, again? And. Uh, Um, but indeed they did and on a big scale in 97 and 2001 when Labour had a big national appeal they was areas like that which kept the Labour government in 2005 um, but which have now deserted Labour for the Tories on a quite a big scale can it chase the Tories got 66-67% of the vote in the general election in 2019 it's um, in Labour last week Labour literally lost every seat that it was uh contesting now we we it's slightly different because people talk about these as kind of left behind towns left behind by globalization i'm sure you know these things have a meaning but you have to be very careful that you don't sound patronizing and that you know we should all be on the you know the uh, conveyor belt towards you know middle class nirvana of living in somewhere like i do in southeast london where you've got wine bars and coffee bars and uh you know, people are living it out on the street and people can't pick and choose when they go into work uh, in the office nowadays as uh, something which everybody else aspires to, but others aren't able to because they've been left behind. Uh, you know, you have to accept that uh, people have different outlooks, different values, and they have pride in their areas. So I think the language which is talked about uh, is very important as well.
0: Pride was one of the, I think, 2005... That was kind of the word of that campaign. There was the respect agenda. But I remember, particularly in the local government elections around that time, it was that whole thing was proud of Hammersmith and Fuller. In fact, I remember the Labour Party broadcast, proud of South Dorset, proud of Gedling. you know, all that. Labour at that point really understood. And what it was able to do. And again, it's not that hard. (laughs) These aren't insurmountable things. They're entirely consistent to go. People like where they live and they want they want it to improve it. It's not that they think it's perfect. But they want to really like where they live. And that applies on a national level as well. They don't want to feel down about the country. They don't want to feel like we've all gone backwards. That doesn't mean that they don't think there are problems that need sorting out in work poverty, unemployment, racial and other divides. But fundamentally, I think it's that Labour for basically <laughs> for the last at least 11 years hasn't really sounded like it likes the place that much, and it doesn't mean that you have to sing "Rule Britannia" and wave Union Jacks. There's a kind of smell that's given off, and certainly waving the Palestinian flag on mass at a party conference does not send the message yeah. that um, Britain is your first priority. So yeah. maybe it's maybe it's just a simple attitudinal shift.
1: I think it's it's also uh, you know of its nature. If you're the opposition party, you oppose. That's what you do, uh, you know, and. If you're, you know, sitting in Parliament and the Tories are bringing forth a lot, bringing forth a lot of, um, you know, things that you disagree with, then you're going to kind of present that to the uh, the public as these great wicked things which they're doing, and it's it creates a kind of mood of negativity uh, around, which I think is is hard to do. You know, logically you'd say if you know one of the issues for Labour, which is different now from the eighties is that it needs to get nearly all its extra support from the Tories. You know, there's no center ground, which you can get it from, but logically you'd say, well, if you want to get switches from a party, actually you should be cozying up a bit closer to them. Um, You know, because if you insult what they're doing, you're actually implicitly insulting all the people who voted for them and the judgment, which they made, and you're relying on a kind of bias remorse. So the balance to strike uh, is, uh, is very important there as well. The other point about 20, 2005, of course, uh, as well as the points you make is that on the Tory side, uh, they were running a very sinister campaign there about immigration, um, with which the the do you know, do you, are you thinking what we're thinking uh, posters, uh, which was designed to tap into the, uh, you know, the the views which they thought uh, voters in many of these uh, labour areas held. But because Labour, you know, was dealing with the immigration and asylum issue, you know, was perceived to have made mistakes, but was also perceived to be addressing it and dealing with it in a governmental way, people trusted Labour to continue uh, with it. Uh, and, you know, naturally, the swing which remained to the Lib Dems, also to the Tories, was was uh, amongst more middle class people over Iraq and other things in in that particular election. So, uh, it's you know, and I still think, you know, I think one, one of the... The progress that Keir has made is that um, I, I suspect you know I didn't talk to a huge number of voters that for those who were turning away from Labour it wasn't with the kind of uh, you know active rejection which it was in 2019 it was a much more nuanced and balanced uh, uh, decision and you know what all these results show us is the capacity which you have now when there aren't so many people who have you know, core tribal loyalties to parties, you can get big swings in, uh, in, in short periods of time. Now, it's obviously going to be monumental for Labour to turn it round before the next election, but it's, it's at least, you know, something that's possible.
0: You mentioned the word progressive earlier to, to describe Labour and other parties, and I just wonder if... I know the Conservatives are called the Conservative Party, and literally that is the opposite of progressive. But nevertheless... Do voters see the Tories as regressive? And actually, if you think of the way perceptions around the pandemic. So take out, obviously, all the incompetence. And I think a lot of that stuff is judgment deferred, that when you get the other side of COVID, however long that takes, and you have public inquiries, maybe public opinion starts to change a bit and more of the outrage will come. But at the moment, as people are just focusing on getting through this, and that's all they're thinking about, you can see why the vaccine has been a a source of huge optimism. But also the furlough scheme. And early on, the government took away a lot of, I mean, there are still, you talk to publicans about the economic problems that they face. It's not like they've solved every economic problem for now, but they at least allayed most people's first fear actually was, oh, my God, am I going to lose my job? Can I pay the rent? Can I pay the mortgage? That stress was kind of taken away by the government. And I think that was huge. So even though they are the Conservatives and people might perceive that Labour are more progressive, given the last year and a half where Corbyn actually felt really regressive for a lot of people, whether on anti-Semitism or the economy or anything, and then the Tories have paid people's wages and got this vaccine. Is it unreasonable to suggest that actually for a lot of people, the Tories might feel a more progressive option?
1: Yeah, i mean I, i'd imagine most people wouldn't see things in terms of uh you know how we would define progressivism um you know the, the tendency always would be that you know people were asked to define what the parties are about that uh labor's about looking after poor people and about you know more equality it's about the health service and still i suspect now uh you know despite the um the new kind of sources of support it has people would still think the tours are basically for uh rich people i think on the pandemic I mean, in my experience i did a few groups focus groups through the last year uh and there's a core group of people who um you know probably hate johnson for pretty much everything he does who uh have got a very well rehearsed um uh you know, narrative of, of where it all went wrong and they'll kind of acknowledge at the end that the the vaccine rollout has been uh you know a success um, but they still think it's been a disaster uh, and most the, but the generality of opinion is that you know how could any government have you know done much better and you can understand why they made mistakes i mean, my my suspicion is that you know any public inquiry is people are just going to want to move on from it um, and it's unlikely, it's unlikely to be kind of a backlash because that will still be the, the kind of general uh, mood. I mean, I think that the nature of the Tory government we have at the moment is, is, you know, whether you describe it as progressive, throwing lots of money around, it's basically a function of Johnson and uh, his, uh, the fact that he, is, he finds it almost impossible to do anything which he, he thinks is going to upset anybody. Uh, you know, he just likes to be popular, so he'll make wholesale promises of spending or whatever it is um you know more police um without any kind of particular ideology ideology behind it i think when push comes to shove and if the tories see that there's uh you know an advantage in positioning themselves you know in the in the new kind of post covid world of public spending uh restrictions as sort of saying well you know we'll spend what's necessary but you know at least you can trust us to have an eye on the um, you know, on the on the strength of the public coffers, whereas Labour would just be indiscriminate, I suspect that um, difference would, would still, you know, resonate with most people.
0: Because based on what you said earlier, it seems that the opportunity for Labour coming out of this crisis, and given Johnson's instinct to just splurge to keep his popularity afloat, Labour could potentially position itself as a party that says... This government spending is out of control. A lot of this spending is reckless. And actually, we will be, not austerity, obviously, but we would be far more sensible with the public finances. This government has been wasteful. And and flip the argument that way around.
1: Uh, Potentially. And I think definitely Keir would be a credible kind of... um, And Rachel Reeves would be credible kind of vehicles for uh, that kind of message. Um, But I think the Labour Party would have a long way to go to kind of convince... Uh, people but but also it would also have to get it out of the mentality uh, of um, you know unspecified extra spending in every area because if you say that well the next question obviously is well what would you not spend that the Tories are spending Um, so you know I think that may well be the kind of uh, direction of travel they have to move in towards the uh, next election a lot depends of course on you know, the reality of the economy and what the, what the Tories themselves do and whether, uh, you know, th- there is any kind of splurge and whether people understand, you know, the Tories got a fairly credible excuse, it seems to me, if people in the red wall pop up in uh, three or four years time and say, well, what about all the spending that you promised us? Um, which doesn't seem to have materialized I don't think many electors think in those terms anyway but theoretically if that was the case well the Tories could very easily say well sorry you know we just spent we just borrowed 250 billion pounds or whatever it is keeping you all in work uh during the pandemic so I think the 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 you know the, the game has changed the the ground has changed for all of these uh uh, issues I and mean, it will be at least a year I think until we find out where the parties are differently positioning themselves on it
0: and ultimately that that exposes something that I don't think a lot of people in politics don't understand is if if you can make people like you you can change your argument and they'll go along with you because they'll go you know what I know you promised to spend a load of money around here but you've told me that you borrowed all the money because of Covid and I kind of get that and that doesn't mean I feel betrayed I get that the, I get that things have shifted. When they don't like you, they go, oh, that's a broken promise, you terrible lying bastards. So being likeable is such an important part of politics. I mean, it's arguably the essence of it is, do I like you or not? And we try yeah. and pretend this isn't part of it. Obviously, some of the late leaders Labour have chosen it, it, it are sort of in defiance of that principle. Um, so then how does Keir Starmer make himself more likeable than Boris Johnson? Uh,
1: well, I don't think, you know, I'm, I don't think you can... Uh, present yourself to the public as anything other than you are in this day and age. You know, people, everybody you think of that, you know, is a celebrity of any sort. People feel they have a fairly good grasp of their kind of character. And uh, and usually they'll be broadly right. You know, the television is pretty unforgiving to of anybody who tries to repackage themselves artificially. The one thing which I do think uh, Kia probably needs to do is at some point have some kind of... Um, declaration that the Labour Party has changed in some way you know one of the things which uh you know I think has been absent from the last 11 years really is any sense from Labour of acknowledgement that it's defeated been defeated and that even though it might think it's been right on the arguments that the public doesn't agree with them and I think it you know that all actually kicked off with the very messy way that Labour left power in 2010 trying to hang on uh, in what was clearly a completely untenable scenario by trying to put something together with the Liberal Democrats uh, and uh, and then becoming kind of resentful of the coalition and, and trying to sort of suggest that it wasn't a legitimate um, uh, government. Um, and, the, the you know, all these were perfectly understandable rhetorical arguments, but what it meant was that Labour at no stage faced up to the fact, the scale of what actually was... You know, I would argue, one of its worst defeats in its history in, in 2010, to go from being a majority to uh, less than 30% of the vote. Um, you know, and that was that has never been acknowledged, and for different reasons, the same really has happened after each election. We had the Scottish debacle in uh, 2015, we had the, the freak election in 2017 when Labour thought it you know felt felt like it was a moral victory. Um, no point has Labour actually stood back and said. Uh, well, actually, the public don't really like what we've become or they don't, you know, good proportion of the of the uh, electorate, including a lot of our ex-voters. Um, are now, you know, they're, they're not, uh, you know, they, they basically don't support most of the things which we take for granted. And that's going to mean at some stage, I think, which that key is going to have to say we have actually been wrong about some stuff. Uh, Now, now what that is, um, you know, the the scope of it, I don't know, but I think there has to be a change message. Now, obviously, there'd be trites to call it new Labour or, you know, to try and repeat the trick that was done in the 1990s explicitly by uh, Blair's team when they tried to make people think that uh, Labour was a, uh, you know, a reinvented party. But there has at least, I think, to be acknowledgement of a different direction uh, and that Labour is actually listening to what the electorate has been telling him.
2: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply.
0: You mentioned Scotland there, which is really interesting. Just before we come on to Scotland, on London, as you said, the, the, I, I'd seen Twitter, and obviously, believing what you see on Twitter is a fool's game. But there were people saying, oh, it's Sadiq Khan might win it on the first on the first, you know, on, the, on first preferences. Like, oh, my word. Now, he still won with a very healthy margin of victory, but it was closer than last time, and you it, it got the sense maybe this was the problem with the, the expectation management, but it was a bit closer than they would have liked. Is that because Boris had won in London before, so there's probably still a kind of pro-Boris constituency across the city, and having him as the Tory leader and Prime Minister helped kind of pump up that vote in the way that Theresa May or David Cameron wouldn't have? Or or is there something happening there as well? Are the Conservatives making deeper inroads in London?
1: Um, well, I mean, I think what, what is kind of brought home to us is that you can't, you know, I've, I've probably been guilty of this myself. You kind of think there's some sort of, you know, magic dust over the greater London area, which... Um, Repels Tories. puts, puts rocket puts rocket boosters under Labour and means people hold their nose at the at the at the at the at the, the words Tory and there were a few kind of holdouts in the fringes of East London but actually that trend was pretty inexorable and was potentially going to engulf Boris himself and Duncan Smith at the next election. Uh, you know we've been reminded that there are still a lot of Tories in London. Um, you know there, was, there were fascinating aspects to it. I mean there's. Um, Clearly, there are a few areas where the Tories have been done permanent damage by Brexit. Um, you know, the, the scrape through in uh, the West Central area, which is Westminster and Kensington, with um, you know, huge swing to uh, Labour there. And one can only attribute that to the fact that, you know, these are uh, people have who have a huge stake in the EU. They really, you know, Boris has really um, broken with them on that. You know, and, and there are other parts of uh Cambridge and Peterborough mentioned others where that's uh, clearly an issue as well I think um, I would if I was Labour I would also be looking um, at potentially some uh, you know different groups in different parts of London where the trends have not over the last couple of elections been quite as rosy as they have elsewhere you know one of the areas which uh, Bailey won which uh, Goldsmith didn't didn't was Brent and Harrow and there's a whole big bank of um uh you know majority indian origin voters i think uh in north brent and harrow which where the swing wasn't so great last time you know and, and maybe needs, maybe needs to be careful about too much taking for granted you know all um non-white voters as necessarily being anti-tory and there might be trends underlying it there but the general point is that this was a high point election for the tories and affected london to a certain extent Uh, as well there were enough parts of London you know there were swings to the Tories even in you know the the, you know the real kind of uh, progressive heartlands you know places like Hackney and Lewisham and places like that Um, so uh, you know that's that that's the reminder that London isn't kind of sort of immune from everything else uh, even uh, you know even though the trends remain contrary to what we're seeing in much of the rest of the country.
0: And if you were Sadiq Khan or you were advising him what would you do on the back of this result? Would you say, well, we just keep on doing what we're doing, or do you think, oh, we need to be more visible, or we need to talk
1: about X, Y, or Z more? Um, well, I think Sadiq personally is, you know, is, is on the whole pretty popular. I think you know he needs maybe to get um, you know one or two achievements under his belt. It'd be, it'd be great if he could get Crossrail actually up and running. Um, maybe he needs to focus. You know, clearly one of the you know, one of the factors which. Uh, you know, appears, uh, in popular opinion at least, uh, which is a problem in London, is the, is the level of uh, crime. Um, you know, maybe he needs to focus his attention a little bit more explicitly on that, you know, he's clearly been doing things on that, um, but, uh, you know, maybe slight, slight adjustments in, in the, uh, and perhaps a little bit more strategic focus on, on achievements and, uh, you know, what he's trying to do.
0: Let's talk about I don't think Scotland. I anything
1: particularly wrong. Yeah, go on.
0: Yeah, uh, Scotland, because uh, if anything, it's the most fascinating part, and obviously because it has implications for the rest of the UK, and indeed whether the UK can be called the UK in a few years' time. Um, because of Scotland's system, it makes both sides on the union debate able to claim victory, because it's basically 50-50. But what all sides have to kind of accept is the runaway popularity of the SNP is incredible. And I know that voters know that they've got two ballot papers. So on the second one, you know, that effectively tops up. But on the first past the post segment, on the constituency vote, I think the SNP got something like 38 seats. And then the next party, you're talking four or eight. I mean, if that was a Westminster election, and I appreciate that some voters would vote differently because you wouldn't split your vote in the way that you do. But still, and after all this time and given their record, And I get all the reasons why. But, 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 their popularity is something that anyone who's worked for a political party anywhere in the UK really has to marvel at.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, in a way, you've got a similar situation to Wales where Labour is basically turning out the same result with slight differences at the margins, election after election. Scotland has got into the same kind of Uh, frame uh, now where the SNP are totally uh, dominant and obviously the system was set up because of the fear you know in the late 1990s that uh, Labour was going to get that kind of domination of the constituency uh, section which indeed you know won the overwhelming majority in the first couple of elections. I mean my perspective on it is that uh, this ought to be seen as a really quite severe setback for the SNP that they've you know they Set, set this election up as being about whether they individually got the majority uh, as a mandate for a uh, referendum. Uh, and let's, forget, let's remember also, this is the uh, first election after Brexit, which was supposed to be the great game changer. You know, lots of very uh, uh, bright people told us that if uh, the UK left the EU, then, that, then there'd be a surge in support for Scottish independence. Actually, it's back at you know, roughly 50-50, probably majority no uh, right at the moment. Um, there was no uh, uh, swing to the, uh, the SNP to suggest that uh, there's the great desire for a referendum. In fact, the opposite. Uh, you know, there was clearly um, wide-scale tactical voting going on to defeat them, presumably generated by the fact that people didn't want to go through all this uh, again. Sturgeon's own share of the vote fell in her constituency so it seems to me very cheeky indeed for them to claim a mandate when they failed to do so um, and I think it'd be quite legitimate to say no because we cannot go through you know it doesn't just affect Scotland it's the UK as well uh, and the, the benchmark as I understood it after the uh, 2014 referendum was that they wouldn't return to this until there was a consistent level of 60% support for independence in the polls, which has never been reached. So the goalposts are moving. And it seems to me utterly reckless and irresponsible to be talking about having a referendum on the future of the UK in the next couple of years with all the fallout from COVID on public spending and the rest of it and without that kind of mandate. Um, I think, you know, I suspect if the SNP hadn't um, put that you know, benchmark down they probably would have won a majority because it seems to me that people regard Sturgeon whether they agree with her or not as a competent leader that's the Ashcroft polling showed that um Boris uh you know extraordinarily unpopular let's remember this result is also in the context of an extraordinarily unpopular Tory prime minister uh, in London as well and they've and they've still failed to get over their own uh declared threshold and so I think it's a kind of um it's a terrible situation Scotland's got into. It's so got a government that's actually got an active interest in not making the system work uh, and not trying, you, you know, show no particular, um, at, you know, interest in actually addressing some of the problems which uh, Scotland has because it's so fixated on this one issue. And um, you know, it seems to me that's only going to um, shift. You're only going to see that change when uh, you know either for for whatever reason Sturgeon goes, and I don't see a kind of huge you know, bank of talent behind her to replace her, or we get back to a situation where Labour is a serious contender for UK government again. uh, And it's not seen as kind of inevitable and necessary to vote for the SNP if you're not a Tory uh, in Scotland, Um, you know, you've got the choice of voting for for Labour that, you know, when we get to that point, then uh, I think, you know, maybe things might shift. I think also this should be a key element of Keir's strategy, because it seems to me, you know, Labour politicians rightly um, were aghast at the uh, leaving the EU and the implications they had for the economy and jobs and so on. Well, I think there's been a a slight kind of case of my enemy's enemy is my friend with the SNP over the last few years. It's not a tenable position to think Labour could ever be in a Westminster arrangement with them in government. We need to see them off. And we should also be completely opposed to their separatist sort of philosophy, as much opposed as we are to the Tories, it seems to me. So I would hope that Keir will focus uh you know much more on opposing the SNP and uh you know the the, the issues which they're throwing up for the the uh, the constitution over the next couple of years.
0: It also gives him an opportunity to 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 put the SNP and the Tories in a, in a basket together and say, wherever you whether you live in Scotland or England, you've had governments that have done this, this, and this. And their handling of the pandemic has been broadly identical. There was no great creative thinking from, from Nicola Sturgeon. It was Tony Blair's suggestion that everyone get the first dose first that was the game changer, really. That didn't come from anywhere else. Uh, certainly didn't come from within uh, the Scottish government. And whether it's on care homes, on drug deaths, you know, you can, there's a narrative that that Keir can attack, Keir Starmer can attack both of them on. Um, Just on the numbers coming out of that election then. So if if you add the seats in the Scottish Parliament together, you could say, well, there's a pro-independence majority on the floor of Holyrood because if you add SNP to the Scottish Greens, who to be fair to the Scottish Greens are explicitly pro-independence. Whether that's wise if you really want to have environmental impact is another is another issue. But nevertheless, however, the crucial thing for the SNP is a referendum is a binary choice and it does not basically exist at a constituency level. And on votes, if you add the votes of the so-called unionist parties together, although I'm sure Labour might balk at that just in terms of create sort of Ulster-like images that, that, that Labour might not identify with. But if you add effectively that the the remain vote up, it is more votes than than the leave vote as it it pertains to Scottish politics. So for the SNP, surely for them, yes, they can say we're the most popular party in Scotland. Yes, they can point to the, the phenomenal results on that first ballot paper. But deep down, as you say, after Brexit, after Boris, after Covid, after Corbyn, they are still behind on the number on their number one priority. They still can't do it. Now, what they might say as well, uh, the, 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 the sands of opinion are shifting. You know, effectively, the, the Remain vote in Scotland is, is dying out, is that as younger people come into the franchise, they are far more enamoured with Scottish independence. And it will only, uh, you know, in five years time, that will all change. Other people might say, well, the older you get, your perspective shifts and you shouldn't just see a cohort as having one opinion throughout their life. I don't know what your take on that is uh
1: well i mean i think the cohort thing has been just demonstrated to be uh, way too simplistic over decades um you know for as long as anybody has been studying these things they've been saying well you know the, uh, the younger generation is more labor and so the you know over the period of time then more tories are going to die off on the rest of it um and it doesn't work like that it's clearly a much you know as people get older they're you know, it's, again, this is way too simplistic way to look at it. But people become more conservative with the small C on average, and that compensates for it. Is why the argument about rerunning the uh, Brexit referendum was be- because of those changes was nonsense. Um, I mean, I'm, I mean, you can do the math, and obviously, I'm, I'm pretty sure that there was a majority if they'd chosen to put it of the uh, of in favor of uh, independence in the last Parliament uh, as well. Uh, the fact was, we have this kind of funny idea of a mandate. Uh, and the SNP set their own mandate, which was to get a majority. And, uh, you know, the argue, the answer that come back from the electorate is, no, we're not giving you the majority. Uh, so that seems to me to be the the the, the simple answer to it. Um, but there's, you know, there's Nicola Sturgeon. I can, on one level, I kind of admire her because she's clearly a politician of enormous ability. Um, but she's completely shameless in the ma- manipulation of every... Uh, issue every kind of event to, to you know this one end of getting a referendum and then uh, independence and it seems to me to be just debilitating for the Scottish political system and we saw the you know the you know they, they don't have any you know, all the scandals that were going on over Salmon and the rest of it over the last uh, few months not any kind of break in the SNP ranks in Holyrood uh, and nobody able to pipe up and say hang on this is wrong Um, and you know actually forcefully changing it because they are so kind of tunnel vision about this one cause which they have.
0: I wonder if because Sturgeon is seen as a kind of political colossus in Scotland but she seems to make a number of strategic errors. One I think is the way in which they've used the Brexit debate. I totally get that that is a huge opportunity for them because Scotland voted a different way to the rest of the UK. So, of course, you use it. But in the language they've used to describe the economic consequences of Brexit, in a way, I always think with Sturgeon, she's writing setups for the audience to deliver punchlines because she says, separation causes economic chaos, and then you go, well, so does Scottish independence, you know? And it's almost as if, though, she can't imagine the audience at home and what they're going to be shouting at the telly. Now, of course, if you really believe in Scottish independence, frankly, you don't care. Just the same with Brexit. You want it and that's it. But for those they need to convince, you you end up making yourself look quite foolish. Now, you're relatively more popular than your opponents, so fine. So you can win elections, but winning the referendum, which is what they exist for, is another matter. And I also think one of the mistakes they made was with this election, and it's kind of the point you made. I think if Nicola Sturgeon would have said, I'm ruling out a referendum in the lifetime of this parliament, let me get with Covid, I think they'd have got a huge majority and given the kind of uh, you say shamelessness, given the, the, some people might say she's very nimble at some point towards the end of that parliament, you know, you get to polish that majority a bit. You get to say, look, the Scottish people gave me a huge majority. They know I'm a nationalist. Let's be honest. This represents, and because already they are doing that. So you'd have been able to do that with a majority. I and also, let's be honest, they're not probably going to have a referendum in the next two years anyway because they purely for the reason they think they'd lose it I think if they thought they could win it in the next two years they'd have it I think they correctly actually assess that people are horrified at the thought of a referendum anytime soon even people who agree with it so why not just do that why not say give me the lifetime of a parliament I rule it out whether you your leave remain yes or no Labour or Tory you know I'm the most competent leader in the country in her opinion give me that majority and I think that would have solved now of course alba on the other flank may have then been able to make some ground at their expense so it's not an entirely um you know <laughs> it's not a, it's not a ravine without kind of danger but i just thought if i was advising her, i'd have i'd have gone for that but i realized that it's different for them i mean do you think
1: do you think that's right uh, well i think the answer to why she couldn't do that was that it wouldn't have been acceptable to her party the party exists on the basis of uh you know, the referendum as soon as possible. And I think for her to have, I suspect, I don't know, I'm not versed enough in the uh, in the ways of the SNP. I suspect that might have caused to uh, cause ructions within the party to rule it out for a parliament at a time when, you know, the party itself has got some fundamental splits and there are, uh, you know, personalities vying for, uh, for position. Um, so I assume that's why she has to keep the thing on the front burner. I think you're right. I suspect that uh, you know it'll be pushed down the line a little bit. You know, it's already been pushed to post-Covid before anything uh, much happens on this, because the key thing, you know, which will put the pressure on uh, the Westminster government, will be if uh, you know the percentage uh, in favour of independence actually rises you know, well above fifty-five percent for a same period of time, and there's any evidence that people actually want the referendum you know because the polls were showing before the election that even among you know significant proportion of people who would vote yes uh they didn't think this was a priority that that should be pushed for and you know given the likely upheavals we're going to have with public spending and the rest over the next couple of years you can understand why um you know labor is a major player in all of this because it's basically the the, the thing that changed the game you know, in the latter part of the referendum and everybody thought it was initially kind of moving fairly comfortably towards a no vote and it got tight towards the end was because Labour lost uh, a grip on its heartland in the west of Scotland, its own kind of Scottish red wall, if you like, uh, you know, in the Glasgow and the you know, North Lanarkshire, the places which West and Bartonshire, where uh, they voted yes uh, in the referendum, which had previously, you know, been pretty tough areas for the SNP. And now the places where they're, you know, arguably more entrenched than where they used to be strong. Uh, and so, you know, only Labour can ever beat the SNP in the in those areas. It's a very interesting by-election coming up on Thursday, which, you know, most people are assuming is going to be fairly comfortable for the SNP, and on likelihood it will be, in Adrian shots. Um, but the history of by-elections taking more, any kind of election taking place in the kind of Immediate wake of a big general election is that you can sometimes get quirky results through low turnout or through just the reaction uh, to uh, the result which has uh, taken place one way or another. There's still a fair number of Tory votes which the SP got just over fifty percent of the voting on last week. There, there's still a fair number of Tories who could be squeezed to vote Labour probably in that election. It may be a little bit closer than people are suspecting, but this is you know it's one of the big opportunities Labour has to get back into its heartland uh, and, you know, have a, you know, a new message for uh, you know people who it needs in Scotland because, after all, it's very unlikely there's going to be a Labour government unless there's quite a significant number of Labour MPs in Scotland.
0: Anna Sawa is a big change for Scottish Labour. He's a charismatic, thoughtful, uh, talented leader, arguably more talented than Sturgeon, arguably more likeable. I mean, I've never seen... I, I've, i'm not sure if you watched them all i think i watched every scottish leaders debate this time and i watched the welsh leaders debates and being trying to and it's very hard to watch it neutrally if you if you've worked in politics or you know everyone has politics but what shocked me was i thought anasawa won every debate i thought he was the most talented i thought he resonated more with public opinion now his outcome should be judged on what labour would have done under richard Leonard. Not necessarily what happened last time. Um, But nevertheless, uh, it shows how hard it is for him. As someone who really cut through to shift... A similar problem for Keir Starmer is you have these leaders that by any measure are more talented and acceptable to the public than their predecessors, yet they've struggled to shift the dial. Now, obviously, Anna Sawa only had about five or six weeks um, to to try and make an impact against, you know... by far the most popular politician in Scotland, one of the most popular politicians in the UK, so it's going to be hard. Um, but what what are the implications for him, do you think? Do you think he can come away and say, I, I made a, a positive impact and that I need to carry on doing what I'm doing? Or does he need to change his messaging in the wake of that result? Um,
1: I'm ashamed to admit I didn't see any of the Scottish leaders' <laughs> debates. <laughs> 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 I don't think that's um, something to but, uh, check out But, you know, clearly all the kind of... Um, genuinely objective commentators seem to think that he had performed well and, you know, inverted commas, had won the uh, won them. Um, you know, it's very early for him. I think the, the result, as it turned out, was uh, a lot better than it could have been. You know, Labour was looking at going down towards the mid-teens if it wasn't careful in terms of its share of the vote uh, and probably losing all its constituency seats and held on uh, well to, uh, to two of them. Um, and clearly came out, you know. as you say, he's uh, clearly someone who's, um, you know, got the capacity to get a message across in a way that perhaps Scottish Labour hasn't done before. I think, uh, you know, his Labour's the third party in Scotland, so it's it's going to be, uh, you know, hard for him to kind of get much of a hearing while all this debate is going on between Sturgeon and um, and Johnson over the, the referendum and so on. Um, but I think. Uh, you know, he's smart enough to kind of play the long game here. And when we get to, you know, by-elections, and so the by-election on Thursday would be an interesting um, indicator on this and future by-elections, then that might be local elections next year will be a good, good opportunity for Labour to make some uh, steady progress in trying to reverse, um, you know, what's been a pretty traumatic five years, six years for them.
0: Also what he has is, let's say there is a referendum, in the next five to ten years, or three to five years. Having him as a leading light of a Remain campaign in Scotland does shift things a bit. You know, I, I, I get the sense that he's able to appeal to people who would waver and keep them on side, probably in a way that very few politicians can. And that makes him a crucial figure.
1: Perhaps. Yes, I think that's that's absolutely right, and and these problems arguably all started when you know the in the previous referendum campaign when the SNP was incredibly successful at painting Labour into a corner uh, as as playing along a Tory-led um, uh, no campaign uh, with the best of together last time. You know, completely unfair allegation, but but you know probably the kind of uh, root cause of the. Uh, you know, the, the, the swings in the Glasgow area, for example, and the, the hatred of the Tories reflecting itself in that movement to the SNP, which we've seen uh, since. So I think, yes, you're right. So, you know, from what I've seen of him, I think he'd be a very effective uh, advocate for the cause. And it's very important that Labour is seen as, uh, you know, a leading non-Tory voice uh, in that. And then once we don't get a situation which on the face of it might be more likely, as things are at the moment, this is an SNP versus Tory argument.
0: There were more explicitly positive uh, victory uh, outcomes for, for Labour, uh, Andy Burnham having a phenomenal result, and in Wales. And one thing that binds Scotland, England, and Wales together is voters in all of those countries effectively um, voted um, for the party of government that had gotten through this crisis.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, Labour's been very, very dogged in uh, in Wales uh, through you know all the six elections. I think it has been to the Welsh Assembly, the Senate, um, over that period. It's normally come out with pretty much the same result. It's never quite managed to get over the into the technical majority of thirty-one seats. But it's got thirty seats now, three times. Um, and you know, most of us looking at it, I think, said, "Well, Labour's pretty much on the back foot here because." Uh, you've got these four seats in northeast Wales, which um, the Tories uh, gained in the Westminster election 2019 and one in South Wales. Um, the, the, the Welsh system is less proportional. So if you know if you Labour lost those seats or most of them, it wouldn't have got them back uh, from the list uh, on the whole. Um, and they, they look very vulnerable on the face of it, but actually, Labour won most of them, lost one of them, but won the rest of them reasonably comfortably, won the seat back from Plaid Cymru in Ronda, which has given them the position they are. So, you know, it's a really, uh, right at the top end, I think, of the expectations, because it was the same situation which, uh, you know, was, was facing um, Labour in uh, much of England that you had a big, S, a big UKIP vote from the 2016 election. Uh, which all the polls indicated was going to go on masse to the Tories and which would have uh, taken out a lot of those seats. But, um, you know, Labour uh, fought that off and, uh, you know, very, very creditable result from their point of view. Uh, and as you say, I think there is a, um, you know, the Welsh Assembly was, uh, you know, s- s- squeaked through uh, its referendum in 1998 uh, or 1997 or whenever it was. Um, you know, there wasn't a huge kind of public Uh, clamour behind it I think it is now kind of establishing itself and you've got these uh, you know more of a uh, um, push for uh, you know even more powers you know I think part of the general trend with the you know the high profile mayors now you've got Andy Burnham, Steve Rotherham who are national figures no doubt at all Tracy Brabin is going to uh, become one of those uh, as well Uh, and it's it's gradually kind of shifting the focus about politics, I think, to you know, so that we have more consciousness of the powers of devolution and, uh, and the voices from individual parts of the country. And I think the Senate is going to be a big benefit. He's going to benefit from that.
0: We talk a lot about Labour heartlands and about the effects of constitutional questions on them, losing ground to the SNP in the wake of the 2014 uh, referendum, losing uh, the so-called red wall to the Tories over leave. Wales voted leave and yet it hasn't turned its back on labor why is that
1: well it's a very good question i mean i think if you look demographically uh, at uh, the south wales valleys they've got a lot of similarities with you know county durham and uh, places like that um, but it seems that uh, what you know while the labor vote has over the years declined uh, there as it has in, uh, in you know other you know, major ex coal fields like south yorkshire and so on uh, what hasn't happened there is that it's gone to the Tories in any big way um, and that's partly I, I guess because people do have uh, you know people who uh, for whatever reason are just affected with labour have got the, the choice of applied as a more certainly in assembly elections tended to be a more obvious choice but I, but also and these things are unmeasurable it may just be that the 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 sort of opprobrium of the Tories culturally in in much of Wales still lives on in a way that it doesn't in the rest of the country. Now it would be very complacent from Labour's point of view to think that that would necessarily continue indefinitely um, but you know it's one of the great joys of uh, of you know studying elections and following elections is that these kind of unmeasurable factors are still at play in different parts of the country and you can't just um, you know turn everything into a spreadsheet or a model and think it's all going to behave the same way uh, in, um, in every part of the country, based on how many working class people or how many young people you've got or whatever. Um, you know, there are things, uh, you know, which you best described as political culture, which are, and community effects, incredibly important. You know, the fact that, you know, people uh, tend to live with their relatives or, and friends and in areas which they, you know, where they feel uh, happiest and most comfortable. And so that creates, you know, it magnifies all the all of these effects that these things are big dynamics uh, in election results. And I think Wales is a great example of that. You know, it behaves differently. You know, it's, it's got it's had its own kind of red wall trend in in the opposite sense in that Cardiff is now a huge Labour or much, you know, much of Cardiff is now a huge Labour stronghold. Whereas it used to be, if anything, Tory leaning, um, you know, middle class city uh, and probably the Welsh Assembly has contributed to that because a lot of people in Cardiff work there. Um, but you haven't seen uh, that Red Wall effect, certainly not in South Wales, You arguably you have in, you know, Wrexham and so on, but uh, you haven't seen uh, the, the rise of the Tories, and certainly not the kind of enthusiasm for Johnson that you've seen uh, in similar places in England.
0: And what of the Welsh national question then? As you say, the, uh, the referendum to establish a Welsh Assembly, and its, it's inception was different. It had different powers to, to, the, to the Scottish Parliament. Uh, there was more of a clamour in Scotland for for self-representation, for a parliament of sorts, um, and and for those powers to to be there. Um, Now, obviously, Wales and Scotland have different relationships with themselves, with England, with the rest of the UK. Um, Welsh nationalism seems to be more benign. Uh, There seems to be just less appetite for it. Why is that?
1: Uh, I don't know. For years and years and years, um, you know... The idea of Welsh independence you know wasn't even kind of advocated very seriously by the Welsh nationalists uh, you know I'm sure there um you know there were probably amongst their number of, of a number you know many of them who would, you know would have aspired to that but it was almost a kind of joke uh idea um and in polls it was like single figures who would support it and then you've had these really kind of quite extraordinary surveys recently which have and to be honest, I can't remember the precise wording of them, It suggested there's like 30 or 40 percent of people and particularly strong amongst young people who like the idea of Wales being an independent country, whether that actually means when it comes down to it, uh, you know, all the paraphernalia that will come with the kind of independence that Scots, uh, uh, the Scottish nationalists uh, want, uh, who knows, not been really tested. But what we... Um, what we didn't see in last week's election is any sign of that playing out, as far as I can see. I mean, the Plaid Cymru vote share, I think, from, from what I can remember, was very, very slightly down. Um, you know, they, they uh, uh, lost one of their police and crime commissioner posts in North Wales. Uh, a couple of the seats where, you know, they have aspirations to win from Labour, quite a big swing in Labour's favour. So there's no evidence that it's playing out in support for Plaid Cymru, you know, who've got a long-established association with you know most of their support coming from Welsh speaking areas and support for the language and so on and um, uh, and certain middle-class parts in the Cardiff area have, uh, voted for them as well um, but uh, I think it seems to me we're a much, um, it'd be foolish to kind of uh, write off the idea that like, this might grow over the years but we're at a much, very much more of an embryo stage to this process I think here than, uh, than in Scotland.
0: What of the Greens, then, across Britain? There's been talk of a Green surge. Obviously, it's relative. Um, but is it just that, with the Greens, if people don't feel that Labour is a viable option, they think, well, I can I can have a bit of a protest vote, and if Labour becomes more likely to form a government, those voters basically effectively come on side? Or is something else happening?
1: Um, well, I mean... It, um... What uh, is, is obviously true to say that, you know, green politics and the politics of climate change and all the rest of it are becoming much more kind of uh, part of the normality of our lives. And people are accepting many of the, uh, you know, the uh, policy changes, the changes to their lifestyles, the changes to their diet and the rest of it, which, you know, have been demanded from this, uh, from this process. And so to that extent, they're kind of, you know, Probably, you know, rather more central to the political argument than they've been in the past. It looks to me from the outside also as though they're um, as a party they're they're much more effective organising. You know, they're getting more and more candidates standing. They've clearly benefited also from the the, the demise of the Liberal Democrats as a national force, um, because you know they're uh, you know in individual areas. I mean, the norm in the local elections, the pattern that seemed to me uh across the piece was that where you had you know the standard uh four parties standing labor lib dem tory and green the greens unless it was an area where the lib dems had a particular focus of organization or a tradition the greens were normally coming out ahead Uh, and there's been some polls where they've been you know uh, ahead of the lib dems in national vote share as well there are also clearly some areas where the Lib Dems and Greens are working together, and there's clearly an o- overlap in kind of political philosophy uh between them. They're standing aside for each other to try and maximize their uh representation. And they had some spectacular successes. You know, they won a number of uh seats, uh some, some big clusters, they had a big comeback on um uh, Bristol Council, where they have been kind of squeezed out by tactical voting for Labour in the council elections four years ago. Lots of uh, seats which they won. And back in 2019, again, uh, in the elections, just before the Euro elections there, uh, they had sort of picked up seats in very unlikely places. Not always, you know, we shouldn't assume always that uh, these are people who are voting green for ideological reasons. You know, a lot of the places uh, where, uh, you know, the... There's one particular ward in uh, Huddersfield for example which has elected, elected green councils for about 20 years there's another one in Leeds um, and uh, these are relatively working class places they're not places which are you know uh, got lots of what people would normally think of as uh, you know typical green voters so an element of it is also just the normal kind of Lib Dem like community activism and just being pavement politics and so on but um, you know i would expect that we're going to see um see that trend grow um, we may see them becoming you know serious players in um, parliamentary elections in certain areas it's clearly one of the dangers for labor uh you know individual seats where they've um, relied on green tactical voting for their success in the last few years where that may not be relied upon if the greens become viable uh in their own right so i think it definitely looks to me like you know, and I think one of the key aspects to this is the relationship with the uh, with the Lib Dems uh, and whether there's kind of overt cooperation between them, the extent to which um, they uh, kind of feed off, as I say, the national decline of the Lib Dems.
0: What's well, incredible, and I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but I think it makes the point, I hadn't even thought about asking you about the Lib Dems. They're just totally... They just totally kind of slipped my mind. I thought, well, we have got to talk about London, Scotland, Wales, you know, all these things. I didn't even think of the Lib
1: Dems. I mean, I, I guess that tells its own story. Yeah. I mean, I, actually, if I was a Lib Dem uh, looking objectively at these results, I'd actually not be too unhappy, um, okay. you know, because clearly the 2019 election on all sorts of levels was a complete and utter disaster for them. Um, you know, they took a... They went into the coalition with all the... Uh, Problems which that caused for them um, with left of centre voters. Uh, They then took a decision over Brexit. um, You know, directed by the kind by their beliefs as a party, certainly. But it seemed to me there was a there was a gaping opportunity when Labour elected Jeremy Corbyn as leader for a centrist non Tory um, alternative to Labour to uh, attract some of those. Votes, but the Lib Dems took a decision to take a more extreme position on Brexit in the referendum and to define themselves uh, by that. Quite legitimate, you know. From if if that's what they wanted to do, that's fine. But it has left them post Brexit in quite a difficult position. But having said that, their strength has always been uh, their local organisation. There's still fair number of councils up and down the country which they control. Uh, And looking at individual results, what was striking to me in this election was that yes, they had a lot of few losses uh you know probably more to the Tories than anybody else in a few places but they were also popping up and gaining seats you know in quite unlikely areas you know a number of Labour's worst results in Sunderland which you wouldn't have thought of as a great Lib Dem area were losses to the Lib Dems one assumes because of local factors and uh, the local organization they have there they won a couple of seats I think in Barnsley um you know Red Wally type areas um, which is a phenomenon we haven't seen on, on great scale for a while of uh, of people who, who don't want to vote Labour um, but actually choosing the Lib Dems as uh, as an alternative. I think it's a, it's a long way back for them to become a national force for them and you know the other side of that um, symbolically one of the most extraordinary results it seemed to me of the whole election was the Tories got a majority in Cornwall uh, which used to be the you know the great Lib Dem centre I think you know once heard somebody say that a quarter of all Lib Dem members at one point lived in Cornwall um, and uh, you know to big losses by them so their southwest base you know with, with the exception of uh, one or two untypical places like Bath and Cheltenham has uh, pretty much uh, gone for them in national terms they've got some some local government base still but that is now becoming much more dominant for the Tories But their ability to win seats off the back of uh, their local presence and local organisation is sustaining them still, and there's always the possibility that some, you know, probably most likely a parliamentary by-election somewhere, uh, something will give them a bit more of a profile.
0: What's been great about this, Greg, is there's positives for all parties. No matter who people (laughs) listen to, who they support, they'll listen to this. Oh, actually, I feel good about the Lib Dems and (laughs) positives of the SNP and for Labour. I'm not sure there's
1: much you could say in favour of reform, but uh,
0: yeah. No, I mean, again. (laughs) Or ALBA. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) But for the major parties. Yeah. Comfort somewhere for, for all of them. Greg, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: No problem. It's been a pleasure. Yeah.
0: Well, there you go. Greg Cook, do you feel like a prime minister? Did you feel like you were at the heart of Downing Street being told what's really going on out there in the country? Um, I did, listening back to it. I thought, this is absolutely great. And uh, Greg's knowledge and expertise really are unrivaled and unparalleled. And he's very modest at times in that interview. Um, He is absolutely on top of the detail. And the really interesting thing I thought was talking about, I don't even, I'm not even sure you can call it the vaccine bounce or whatever, but just the general sense that um, people have, well, I guess there's two things. One, people have stuck with, in every nation of the UK that had elections, stuck with a government that led them through the crisis. That's true in Wales, in Scotland and in England, um, if you take the results at an England level. Um but what's uh, so there's that. But then there's also just this sense that, oh, uh, the vaccine thing's going well. So that's helping the conservatives. And I was really I, I just always like it when, you know, you've got a bit of a pet theory and someone goes, I don't think that's going to play out. So something that I've thought might happen is after all this, and I obviously talked about this with Greg, after all this, will public opinion change? Will that sense of outrage be delayed? And once we're through basically survival mode, will people look back and will opinion change? And partly why I thought that was was Iraq was at the time, obviously the polling was split and it was volatile, but at times in the lead up to Iraq and during it, people were in favour of it. And there was the so-called Baghdad bounce, for want of a better phrase. Obviously in time, opinion has hardened as details have emerged. And of course, what happened in Iraq after the war has been arguably a large part of that, but about the way that both Labour and the Conservatives talked about Iraq afterwards. And I just wondered with this, whether a similar thing would happen would that you would have Labour, of course, holding the government to account. But if the Conservative ranks split when details emerge and they say, actually, I told the health secretary or the prime minister, I thought that was a bad idea. And then a new narrative evolves that has um, people on both sides attacking that decision. Maybe then you end up in a situation where opinion shifts. Um, now I didn't quite put it like that to Greg, but it was interesting that he was didn't think that that was going to be the case, and that actually um, people's opinion now m- may not shift. Obviously, if if there are new twists and turns and things get worse, then then opinion may shift in that way. But th- this kind of pet theory of mine that uh, there's a sense of judgment deferred. Um, Perhaps is, I say perhaps, it sounds like it's almost certainly incorrect, but let's see. Um, So I I really enjoyed that because I thought, ah, I think I've, uh, perhaps I've been uh, overthinking where public opinion might go after all this but we shall see don't forget to email the show with your funny stories particularly if they're embarrassing and toe curling like chris's was about falling asleep in front of theresa may political party podcast at gmail.com go to mattford.com slash live those gigs are only a week or so away i can't wait to be back on stage with the show particularly with the guests i have particularly at the venue uh, the garrick and the vaudeville and of course to be in front of a political party audience again. The best audience in global showbiz. Um, So I can't wait to see you all there. Subscribe to British Scandal and have a great weekend. Thank you to Greg Cook for a fantastic briefing and I'll see you next week. Ta-ra.